Anyways, sweet, let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. Um, Just beforehand, God, as we begin to break uh, the bread of your word, we pray that your spirit would speak to us, Jesus. We pray, Jesus, that this written word would lead us to you, the living word. And we just recognize and acknowledge, Lord, that your word knows our own heart and knows our own lives better than we do. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would pierce us, God, that it would divide flesh and spirit and bring forth the work of the spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, we just invite you to speak to us and transform us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're picking it up in uh, verse 18 of chapter 7 here, and uh, we're coming to this section in John chapter or Luke chapter 7, which is titled um, Messengers from John the Baptist. And uh, during the early part of Jesus' ministry, really not long after John had baptized him, John was arrested. Remember that? It's actually all the way back in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist was arrested by King Herod. He was arrested because he had been faithfully and publicly calling actions of Herod's sin. Herod had taken his brother's wife in this adulterous relationship and so when Herod had finally had enough of John, you know, saying things about him publicly, he arrested him. And at this point, I mean, you have to think John has been in prison for many months. It's like hard to imagine this in our minds. Sometimes, you know, we, we think of the gospel accounts and stories and we lose sense of the timeline. But it's not like John's been in there for a week or two. It's been many, many months. In fact, the historian Josephus said that John was held... Uh, in a hilltop desert fortress of Herod that is in today modern, uh, the modern land of Jordan, okay? So near, near where the Dead Sea and the Jordan River meet and then east of there into modern day Jordan, he was held in this fortress called uh, Macarius and, uh, and was in that area. Uh, and it's interesting because when you think about John, we talked about this when we were talking about his ministry that that John's ministry primarily happened where he was baptizing people was at the the lowest elevation point on the earth in the Jordan Valley. Remember this, where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. It was right at that point where John was baptizing people. And so he had been taken just 25 kilometers from there to Herod's desert fortress. And Josephus actually accounts that John was held in prison for two years. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, man, I didn't know that. I'm reading this week. I'm like, wow, two years. I like picture in my mind, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days, you know, maybe 90 days in jail or whatever it was. But Josephus says it was two years. And, uh, and we know the story. He was eventually executed at the request of Herodias's daughter because she had danced before Herod. He had been pleased by her dancing, and he promised her up to half of the kingdom. And her request at the behest of her mother was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So imagine, you know, John held in prison. I want us to just kind of get this sense for many, many months, many months. And we forget this when we jump into Luke's gospel account. And in the meantime, Jesus' ministry is totally rocking. Things are going great. You know, the multitudes are coming from all over, as we have seen, from Tyre and Sidon, Gentiles, every Jews coming from every part of the nation. Uh, 
The crowds had yet to entirely figure out who Jesus was. That was going to take some time, but they knew this. He had raised the dead. I mean, he was a prophet. He was a great miracle worker. John had said this about Jesus. He had pointed to him and he'd said, this is the Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, John said this. He said, I'm baptizing you with water, but this man to whom I point you is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In fact, John says, he's going to come after me and I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. In fact, he must increase and I must decrease. And so it's amazing when you think about the ministry of John the Baptist. I mean, John had preached repentance of sin He had called the people to enter the waters of baptism and be cleansed of their sins. John did not mince words. We know this about John. When when he needed to call someone a a, a viper or pronounce woes, he did it. He he called the crowds to produce uh, fruit in keeping with repentance. And at John's teaching, the scripture tells us there had been a great anticipation about what God was about to do. John had actually preached that the Messiah was coming and he had a winnowing fork in his hand. That he was going to separate the wheat and the chaff and he was going to put the chaff into an unquenchable fire and the kingdom would come. John had presented Jesus as the Messiah. So here he is, he's in prison. Months have gone by. And to me, I think, wow, I mean, he knew he had to decrease, but This wasn't the outcome he was expecting. Do you catch that? It's like many months in prison and the doubts began to just hit him. Like, what is going on here? I've been preaching something and I don't see the fulfillment of it. And we can understand that, right? I mean, we all know how doubts can just flood our our minds. And this was certainly a strange outcome to this great ministry. The reports were coming. We're about to read this in a second. Reports were coming to John. Disciples were coming to him. They're saying, you wouldn't believe what Jesus did. He did this, he did this, he did this. But I don't know if John's wondering, yeah, but the ministry's unfolding in the backwaters of Galilee here. Like, what is going on? Where is the coming of the kingdom? And so John heard the reports of these things that Jesus did. And so he sends his disciples to inquire. Yeah, they've told him, but he sends them with this question, are you the one who is the come or should we expect someone else? And, and so I think we just need to, to really understand this story. Get, I guess, walk a mile in John's sandals in this sense to see where his doubt is coming from. Like imagine what's going on for him physically, mentally, spiritually. Physically, this is a guy who's like lived in the wilderness, eating locusts, honey, You know, wandering around in the Judean hills, communing with the Lord and preaching a message that's getting great response. This is, you know, a man who had that freedom and he's now enclosed in this dungeon for months. Mentally, you know, he's thinking, Jesus raised a dude from the dead. He should be able to get me out of jail here. What is going on? I mean, spiritually, again, he had had preached the coming of the kingdom and, and, I mean, don't get me wrong, Jesus' ministry was wonderful, but where's the winnowing fork? Where's the unquenchable fire and the kingdom? And it's not that John was mistaken, but we know this. I mean, we have this benefit as New Testament believers that John didn't have the timing right. 
He didn't know that Jesus was going to come the first time and bring a message of salvation and grace, that he wasn't coming to condemn, but he was coming to save. And John didn't understand that Jesus would come a second time and it would be with that winnowing fork and judgment. He preached it all in one message. John didn't discern the first and second coming. So down in the the bowels of the desert fortress dungeon, there he is, doubts creeping into his mind. He wanted to be sure about Jesus. So let's read this, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John calling two of his disciples calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know what I love about this? I I think this, you know, for anyone that has questions about Jesus, and you wonder who Jesus is, you have doubts about who Jesus is, John sets for us an incredible example. He does the good thing. The best thing you can do is go straight to the source himself. He sent a message to Jesus. You know, I've been hearing this like over and over. Even this morning at worship practice, I was hearing how great the new Top Gun movie is. Like all these people talk about, oh, you got to see Top Gun. You got to see Top Gun. And and you can only listen to those reports for so long and then you got to go find out for yourself. So last week I thought, okay, I'm going to get ready. I'm going to get ready to watch this movie. I'm going to watch the old version, the 1985 version. I'll rent it. I'll watch that. And then I'll be ready to go see the new Top Gun version. And uh, I have to say this. I watched the trailer from 1985 and then the doubts began to creep into my mind. I thought, nah, I'm not wasting my time renting this movie from 1985. I have no interest Whatever interest I had just left me when I watched the trailer. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm going to go see this movie for myself. I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to make a decision for myself instead of listening to the reports of other people. You know, Lisa and the kids saw the movie already. And my wife says, oh, it's great. You got to see it. But I have my doubts, okay? So the same thing can happen for us with Jesus. And if you have doubts... Why listen to this person or that person? Just go to the source yourself. Go to King Jesus. You can go to him. You can present him your doubts and he will answer you. Take your doubts to Jesus. You know, I just think this. I'm like, man, there's nothing dangerous about heartfelt, sincere questions of doubt and bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He can handle them. Moses had doubts. Elijah had doubts. Jeremiah had doubts, but there is a difference in my mind between doubt and unbelief. Like, I mean, doubt and unbelief are two different things. Doubt is a, is a matter of the mind where it says, Lord, I, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what you're doing. That's what John the Baptist had going on. Questions of doubt can be satisfied with reason, with an explanation, with rationale, with observation. You can go to the source and get an answer that will satisfy your doubts. Unbelief is an altogether different matter. Unbelief is not a matter of the mind. Unbelief is a matter of your 
heart and will. Unbelief is that issue where we say, no matter what answer I get, I am going to refuse to believe. I'm digging my heels in the ground. I refuse to believe God's word. I refuse to respond to whatever God wants to say, whatever he, active obedience he requires of me. Whatever information I get, I'm just keeping my heels in the ground. And because unbelief is a matter of the will, it requires this. Unbelief actually requires that you surrender to Jesus. And Jesus with John wasn't dealing with unbelief. He was dealing with doubts. Maybe you're dealing with doubts. Then I would just say, follow the example of John and go straight to the source. Go to Jesus with your question. The Pharisees in the scriptures are examples of unbelief. It didn't matter what Jesus did. They were not going to believe. They made up their will not to believe. It was a matter of their will. You know? And I would say maybe, maybe you're dealing with doubts, but maybe there are those here dealing with unbelief, which is that refusal to believe, and you need to repent of that. That is sin. That is sin. You have to repent and ask Jesus to forgive you and surrender your will to him. So you can have doubt or you can have unbelief, but they're not the same thing and they require different courses of action. Like if you're unbelieving, don't play games with God by trying to muddy the water when it actually just comes down to your refusal to surrender to King Jesus. You need to repent of that. If you have doubts, well, maybe you just have the wrong idea like John did. He didn't understand the first and second coming of Jesus. Maybe you formed wrong ideas about Jesus or about Christianity and those can be corrected. So it's interesting to John's disciples, Jesus actually doesn't give an answer. He says, just go back and you tell John what you've seen. And what you hear with your ears, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think that line's so interesting. Blessed is the one not offended by me. Happy is the one who doesn't, you know, get his underwear in a knot over me. You know, how many times have you been offended? In your life, like you've been offended and then you discover this. It's just like, actually, I was the one who had some sort of misunderstanding in this situation. I got the wrong idea, the wrong impression when, when there was really nothing to be offended at when I went to the source. You know, I was thinking about different times when that's happened in my life. I had a friend say something to me one time and I thought, I can't believe you just said that to me. For two weeks, I was just stewing on this thing that was said to me, it just got the better of me. I was so angry and got me at different times. And then that friend and I, we ended up on the phone and I said, I, I have to ask you something. And I asked about what was said. He said, whoa, 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 man, you did not understand what I was saying. Then I discovered, you know, what was meant, that that was not the intention. The air was cleared. I was offended, but I was in the wrong because of what I thought the intention was. And that can happen with Jesus. You know, you can put all sorts of, you know, implications on what Jesus has said or what you think he's done. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is perfect. And if you're offended at his word, then the wrong is in your understanding. 
The wrong is in your perception. The wrong is not in Jesus, because there's no wrong in Jesus. Amen? Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So here's, you know, John's messengers are gone. And I, I kind of wonder, like, if the crowd had overheard the conversation, if it was a very, very public conversation with these questions that they had brought to Jesus. Maybe some in that crowd began to think, you know, I thought John was a spiritual giant, man. I thought that was a dude who had it all together, man. Isn't he... The, the prophet, and he's like wrestling with doubts. He's got questions and things rolling around in his mind. The big preacher that we all went to hear. The prophet, what the prophet isn't what we expected or thought him to be. And, and he's struggling with some doubts. And I love this, that Jesus goes to John's defense. What did you go in the wilderness to see, he says. A reed shaken by the wind? No, John's not that kind of man. John's not a man just blown around by every wind of doctrine, an easily swayed weak man. What did you go out into the sea, out into the wilderness to see a preacher wearing, you know, $1,200 sneakers and living in luxury? No, that's not what you went to see. You went to hear a prophet. Look at verse 26. What then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus said this, that John, the one that you went to hear, he's a prophet and he's more than that. This is the one the scriptures foretold about who would proceed the coming of the Messiah, the last prophet before the coming of the Messiah. People had their doubts about John and Jesus defended him. This is who Jesus is. I love this about Jesus. Jesus understands us. Jesus loves us. When people point at you and they say, who's that person? What's with that Christian guy or that woman? What's going on with them? I thought they were this. I thought they were that. I think they've done this in the kingdom or they've done that. And Jesus is there to defend you. If you belong to Jesus, aren't you glad that Jesus defends you before the Father in heaven and he will defend you before men on earth? Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Amazing statement. None is greater than John, because all the prophets preached the coming of the Messiah, and they never saw it. But John was the last. He declared the coming of the Messiah, and he saw the fulfillment with his own eyes, John the Baptist both prophesied and saw the fulfillment. It's, uh, he presented Jesus to Israel. But John still lived under the Old Covenant. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, but the difference between you and, and, and I and John is this. If you believe in Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Rather than approaching the Father on the basis of the Old Covenant, the law, 
We come on the basis of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the new covenant, in the dispensation of grace. It's not that we're better than John. Jesus says, no, the least is greater. Meaning this, that, that we're greater not because of our character, but because of the position that we have in the kingdom of God. We're saved by grace because we are in Christ. Now, verse 29 says, When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Wasn't that baptism awesome last week, by the way? Nine people getting baptized is just so encouraging and awesome to see. And Luke tells us here that many people accepted the ministry of John and they responded to that which he preached. They repented of their sins and they went into the Jordan River and were baptized for the remission of their sins by responding and participating in the work of God's Spirit through John, what John was doing, they were, Luke says, declaring that God is just, meaning that they agreed with God that God was right and they were wrong and they needed to participate in what God was doing. They agreed with what David said. Psalm 51 verse 4, it'll be on your screen. David said this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, when the Lord says this about you, that you're a sinner in need of salvation, he is completely justified and blameless and righteous in that statement and assessment of you and I. But Luke says this, the religious leaders, they sought to justify themselves, make excuses for themselves. So they rejected the message of John, refused to be baptized, and in doing so, they were rejecting the purposes of God. Luke tells us, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the purpose of God and the sending of his son Jesus is to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came and repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. We have to give ourselves to Christ Jesus and identify with him. And the word of God teaches that we identify ourselves with Jesus publicly by confession of mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord by baptism in water and by participating in the table of the Lord with the people of God. We identify ourselves with Jesus, with the body of Christ. So verse 31, let's check this out. It says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus said elsewhere that, that, that faith in him has to be a childlike thing. Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you will never see or enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And see, faith is to be childlike, but what faith is not to be is childish. There's a difference between being childlike and childish. And the funny thing is, it's not just kids who can be childish, is it? It's like adults can, you know? You ever act like a child once in a while? You think, why am I acting like this? Seriously, this is so childish. My wife never thinks that, but about me, I mean. But uh, adults can be childish. And this is the, you know, the Pharisees. They refuse the ministry of John and they refuse the ministry of Jesus. Well, then what do you want? What do you want? They just refuse to be pleased. You know, it's like the kid in the grocery store just like makes up their mind what they want and it doesn't matter what the parent does. They're going to scream and kick and, you know, you're going to have to take them out to the car and leave the grocery store maybe or whatever the tactic is. These guys just refused to be pleased. John came, he was an abstainer. Man who lived in the wilderness, wouldn't go to parties, wouldn't have a drink. Jesus came. He would eat and drink with people, and people called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. John preached repentance, and Jesus went around doing good. And both of those actions were wisdom in the sight of God, and the religious leaders would not accept either or. That's childish. It's like resisting the wisdom of God. The childish mind says, you have to be this, and you have to do this, and you have to fit into my little box. You've got to line up with my ideas. And when dealing with childishness, nothing satisfies, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you know that. It's like nothing satisfies when a child just loses their mind and goes into one of these tantrums. And Jesus, I would say, you know, thinking back to John here, he deals with honest questions, with doubts but not childish expectations. You know, when a person is criticizing God or, uh, you know, I would even say criticizing the people of God, no matter what they do, it's like, well, we did this, we tried this. It's like, what are you supposed to do? You can't do anything with them. They're being childish. And God works in ways that don't always fit into our nice, tight, tidy little boxes. Have you figured that out yet? Like, you can't do that, Lord. Oh, wait a minute. I guess he's God and he can do what he wants. And Jesus said this, wisdom is proved by her children. Wisdom is proved by her children, not by your childish expectations. Then we come to another account, this text, verse 36. A sinful woman forgiven. It says this, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, um, in those days, I like when you would go to have dinner at someone's house, you, you didn't sit on a chair at a table. It's kind of strange, isn't it? It's like, that's what we do. We sit on a chair at a table. They would do this. They would lay down at the table. You know, you got in trouble for this when you were a kid. Um, they would lay down on their left side, you know, maybe leaning on their elbow with their head towards the table and their feet away from the table. And they would just lay down around the table, and then share a meal together and eat with their right hand. Now, personally, I prefer sitting. <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's seating options in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb, because I'm booking a seat, not laying on the ground. But I won't be childish and criticize what Jesus wants to do, so I'll just be happy to be participating. Amen? But I'm hoping, I'm hoping for a chair. <laughs> in that culture, they reclined. And that's why, even when we read about 
John being beside Jesus at the Last Supper, he was leaning against Jesus. Remember the scripture says that? He's got head towards the table, feet out. He's leaning back against Jesus at the Last Supper. So Jesus is probably laying there at the table from what we read, head towards the table, feet stretched out. Wouldn't have seen someone coming up behind him, approaching his feet. So let's read what happens. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with, her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. You remember when uh, elsewhere in the gospel accounts in Bethany, when Mary came and anointed Jesus, she broke the alabaster jar. She anointed his head. This isn't the same instance. She anointed his head with oil. Remember Judas? He criticized it because he was a childish person. This isn't the same instance because this woman is anointing Jesus' feet. She's wet those feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair, a very intimate act, and, and anointed them with oil. And th- this to me is like the picture of someone like, what you just sense is like brokenness. Don't you sense brokenness? You read this? And you sense great love. Now verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One, owned, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I read this, I think, man, isn't Jesus full of wisdom and love and graciousness? It's like, and it's crazy. It says here, like, Simon said this to himself, and Jesus answered him. Jesus knew what was going on in Simon's heart and mind. We've seen this elsewhere. Jesus knew the criticisms of Simon's heart. And and we discover this in the gospel that Jesus knows what we think. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's going on. So he tells this parable, and it's amazing to me. It's three sentences long. Three sentences. A three-sentence parable, and the thoughts of Simon's heart are laid bare before him by the Son of God. Because Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And Hebrews says that the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword and it will pierce to the division of soul and spirit. That's what Jesus did for Simon right there. That's what this parable did. And Jesus said to him, there's two people with debts. They can't pay. One debt is considerably larger, Simon, but both debts get erased. Who will love more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not 
cease to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever heard of a bank or a lending institution just like erasing someone's debt? It's like, oh yeah, your mortgage? No problem. Let me just scratch that out for you. Oh, your car loan? Your line of credit? No problem. It's all gone. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? What Jesus suggested in this parable just doesn't happen. Like, this is the point, right? This doesn't happen. Lending institutions don't just, like, erase your debt out of the kindness of their heart. I'd like them to. <laughs> you know, I, I, if my bank wants, you know, if anyone that works for my bank right now is listening, and you want to just erase my debt, please, by all means, <laughs> you will have my love and loyalty. This is not what human beings do, right? But this is what God does. It's what God does for our sins. It's like right now, in a few seconds, you know, if my laptop was here, I could log in, check my mortgage, see where it's at, you know, see where, you know, my credit card bill is at, see where all my debts are at. And it's just like this painful reminder that it's like, I am in debt and I got some work to do and it's going to take a while. But at the same time, I can take my Bible or I can log into my spiritual bank account, the heavenly one, the one that is in like the eternal bank account. And whenever I check that balance, I discover this, paid in full. Paid in full by the blood of the lamb. Bought with blood. No spiritual debt. Man, I go to my father in heaven and I have no spiritual debt whatsoever. But if you don't know that, the point of this parable, or if you only have a small comprehension of that, you will love very little. You know, how do you know? I, 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 over the years, I've just read this and I'm like, man, I'm like a guy who grew up in the church and I like didn't go like crazy and kill people and spend time in jail and this and that and then get saved. And it's like, I don't feel like my debts are like so evil and awful that, you know, compared to some people, that my love is just too small. And I have to remember, and you and I have to remember, that our debts are weighed against Jesus, not against one another. And whenever I look against at my debts and my sin, and I compare them to the person of Jesus, I think, oh my gosh, am I in trouble without the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know if you love little or love lots? How do you discern the depth of your love for Jesus? Well, here's Simon. He put on a meal, but he didn't offer to wash Jesus' feet. The sinful woman probably didn't have the resources to put on a meal, but she could wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and anoint them with oil. And Jesus is saying here this. He's saying this. To do the very minimum for me is to show a lack of love. And to do the max in your life shows the presence of your love for me. You know, what's the difference? The difference is this, that the one who does the minimum, Jesus says, is the one that only has a few sins forgiven and loves little. The one who does the max knows and shows their love. 
See, when our service for Jesus functions on this basis, how little can I do and get away with it? You know, how little can I do and be right with him? That is a small amount of love. Say, oh, well, maybe I could just play with sin this far and I'll just do this much. I'll come to church on Sunday and I'll do this and I'll do that. When we're playing the minimum game, it's little love. See, love is reckless. Love is like a reckless spender. You know, I don't mean reckless in the irresponsible sense. I mean in the extravagant sense. You know when you just like do something out of the extravagance of your heart because you love someone? The more you love Jesus, the more reckless you will become. Like this woman was reckless. Coming into this scene and crying and kissing his feet and pouring out oil. That is reckless love. And the heartless Pharisee, what did he do? He did what was adequate. Wasn't loving. Wasn't reckless. We can be like this, can't we? Fulfill the minimal responsibilities and just leave it at that. This woman was extravagant in her love. And Jesus announced before that whole household... Her sins are forgiven. And I think, wow, well, did he forgive her sins because she washed his feet? No, she washed his feet because her sins were forgiven. She washed his feet because in him she found the answer to her brokenness. In him she found the answer for her pain. In him she found the answer for her doubts. In him she found the solution for her sin and she loved extravagantly. Verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful text. I want to give you five applications this morning, okay? Here they are. Number one, you got doubts? Go to the source. Just take it right to Jesus. He can handle it. He can deal with it. He can take your yoke. He says, you know, bring, come to me with your burdens. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come to me. If you're weary and burdened, go to the source with your doubts. And second thing, if you're in the category of unbelief, you need to repent. That is sin. Your sin will separate you from your God. And you need to repent of a, a willful attitude of unbelief. What more does Jesus need to do for you to get it through your heart and your thick skull that he loves you and that he's come to save you and free you from sin's penalty and consequence and to give you the gift of eternal life? Repent of unbelief and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing is this. Let Jesus correct your thinking. Just submit your thinking all the time. The word of God says we are to take captive our thoughts and submit them to Christ. And lots of times we get wrong ideas about Christians, wrong ideas about Christianity, wrong ideas about the Lord, wrong. We need the Lord to correct our thinking. So Jesus is right. He's right. If there's a problem between me and the word, guess what the problem is? Me. Let Jesus correct your thinking. Fourthly, let's be childlike, not childish. And fifthly, Jesus has forgiven your sin. So be extravagant in your love for him.